Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, August 15th, 2008. I'm Alana Rengi. If there's one thing learned young at art galleries, it's don't touch the paintings. This is especially true for Ad Reinhardt's abstract black paintings, velvety textured canvases painted with almost oilless black pigment. Reinhardt's black paintings have suffered some serious damage over the years, mostly from oily fingers. The result? They've been clumsily resurfaced, and Carol Stringari, chief conservator at the Guggenheim, has to deal with the consequences. This week, we visit the Imageless exhibit at the Guggenheim, which takes one Reinhardt painting and uses new laser technology to try and scrape the paint down to the artist's original layer. You'll definitely benefit from a visual while you listen, so check out our slideshow on the exhibit at scienceandthecity.org podcast. Love Science and the City podcasts? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceandthecity.org. Hello, my name is Carol Stringari, and I'm the chief conservator at the Guggenheim Museum. We're here at the Guggenheim in Tower 7, at the top of the rotunda. We are here to look at Imageless, which is a small exhibition created by the Conservation Department here at the Guggenheim in conjunction with the Museum of Modern Art, and it's on the scientific study and experimental treatment of an Ad Reinhardt black painting. Ad Reinhardt, he was a very complex and very interesting individual, aside from being a painter, and he died in 1967 prematurely at the age of 54, I believe, and besides what we're going to see, which is a very small window of his work, which he was doing at the end of his life, he had a very colorful career. Key to understanding these black paintings is color, because they're not really fully black and he was in some ways a brilliant colorist because he was able to use the tiniest amount of color within the black and create these very subtle tonalities and perceptual differences and a lot of people like to equate these with some kind of morbidity or death or spirituality and I think that he really rejected all of those labels and, and what he was doing was in some ways a very classical kind of painting. Restoration can mean so many different things. It can mean restoring a damage. It can mean something was torn, you know, or you, you're restoring the structural integrity. Maybe the artist stretched it on a really bad stretcher, for example, and it's torqued or, you know, it's distorted because of that. You might have to change or reinforce that stretcher. Many, one of the things that greatly affects the aesthetics, though, of a painting is, is cleaning. And we do a lot of cleaning because things get either dirty or they have surface coatings that change. And those cleanings can be very straightforward or they can be very, very difficult in terms of how, like if you're t- taking off a varnish or coating you know, how how cross-linked or how deteriorated it's become affects what kind of solvents you can use to dissolve it. And then you have to do all kinds of tests to determine what's safe for the, for the painting underneath. And in some cases, you can't remove something, and that's just something you have to accept. The conception of this project in 2000, the AXA insurance company came to us and the Museum of Modern Art with a painting that they had they had this 
what was deemed a valueless, unexhibitable painting, and they called us and asked us if we would like to use it as a study painting. And that's very unusual. I think this happens in the insurance world all the time, but we have had very few instances where it's been offered as a... Well, actually, this is the first that that I know of. This was an extraordinary opportunity for us because... We have a very large collection of monochromatic and minimalist artworks, although he doesn't consider himself a minimalist painter. They're the same kinds of issues. And so we were delighted and said, absolutely, we would love to have the painting. And we met with our colleagues at the Museum of Modern Art and then colleagues all over the city and scientists and just discussing what kinds of things we could do. We tested a lot of our sort of traditional methods of conservation, which involve solvents or poultice gels or, you know, we, we tested in painting techniques and things that we do on a regular basis we were able to do on this surface because... You know, it was deemed no longer a work of art. Particularly interesting for this exhibition is how he created these paintings. And he's working, raking natural light in his studio, no lights on. And he would work flat instead of on an easel. And beneath that painting, there's a small table with wheels. And essentially what he was trying to do was create this flat plane of color, which was created by hand, no tape. He made those lines completely by hand. And then he would brush out his brushwork so that he was eliminating this hand that, you know, he spent so much time creating these works and then he wanted his hand to go away. So he would brush them out so they would be completely flat and have no brushwork. But if he didn't get the paint on in time, he might end up getting something that dried with brushstrokes or uneven matte and gloss surface. So that's what he was continuously being challenged by, how to get these perfectly even. Reinhardt was using primarily commercial oil paints. He talks about using Bocour, and he talks about using Windsor Newton. So I think he was trying different things. I think he was using high-quality paints, and because it was very important to him to have... I mean, the pigment itself was very important. So here we have a small demonstration of how he painted these black paintings. What we have here are examples of jars of paint that we've created based on what he said that he did. And what we're showing here is black paint. He generally used Mars black, which has a sort of warmish tonality. So what we're using here is Mars black tube paint with a tiny bit of colored pigment. So here we have red, green, and blue. He would put the paint in a jar, pour turpentine over it, and then he he talks a lot about how much he mixed them. So he would mix the turpentine with his paint and spend a lot of time making it completely homogenous and then let it separate, so a little bit like oil and vinegar or the cream on the top of your milk. And then what you have at the bottom of the jar is a very dense, pigment-rich material that has it has, still has a little bit of oil in it. The oil is designed to encase each pigment particle. So what you would see on the top would be the binder sealing everything, and that's why it's glossy. As you start to extract paint, this is, a, this is one extraction, you start to get pigment that's not surrounded by binder because you're extracting binder and then you continue to extract and here you have pigment that's just sitting on the surface and that that's what makes the painting so beautiful and it also makes them very fragile because when you touch it it doesn't have that oil layer to protect it and will easily absorb the oils out of your skin or sort of like suede you can sort of push them across the surface and very very difficult to restore the first step was 
meeting with the various parties, the insurance company. We had to have it appraised and discussions with the curators and, you know, how we would go about doing this. And then we talked to AXA, who had donated the painting, basically saying, well, we can't do much with this without funding. And so they actually funded the research, which was great. So that was the second step, is getting the funding. Once we had the funding in place, then we started to very slowly analyze every single aspect of the painting. The original painting would have been five by five feet, and it would be a cruciform shape, essentially. And you could say it's divided into nine squares, although generally the central horizontal band is one entire band. It's your eye that kind of creates these nine squares. So what you're looking at right now is a painting that was damaged, it had something fall on it, and it has scratches and cracks and some old in-painting. And what happened was, is after we started to research the painting, we realized that this surface this sort of purplish surface that you see here was not Reinhardt's hand. The conservation profession has come so far over the past 50 years, and we we actually have what's called a code of ethics like a doctor now, and one of the essential points of that is reversibility and retaining the integrity of the object. So nothing we do is supposed to be irreversible or lose the original intention or integrity of the object. And that's a very difficult and stringent code because many times a restoration will be something that it's questionably reversible. And we know that now, so the reversibility is just, I think it's a standard that we, we look at and I think it's important to look at, you know, is this something that can that someone 50 years from now can reverse? Because many of our materials change, and a lot of the a lot of the work that we do on all the paintings or objects in the collection are reversing old treatments because they deteriorate and they change, and then you see them, and they may have been beautiful when they were done, and and now they have yellowed or shifted in color. So. You're always thinking about what, you know, your mandate is to preserve something for future generations, so you're also having to think about your the future generations of conservators that are going to be working on these things. And also the historical importance of an artwork. I understand why that painting was resurfaced, because there was really no other way that this restorer probably could figure out how to restore it. And it, for whatever reason, someone felt it needed to be pristine. Although we do a lot of treatments, we don't just treat things without giving it a a tremendous amount of thought whether it really needs to be done. This is a series of nine cross-sections, which are essentially a speck. I mean, you can barely see the sample that we take. What we did was take these nine cross-sections from each of the squares. And we mounted those and we looked at them under a polarizing light microscope with reflected light and invisible light. And then we can also look at them with the microscope under ultraviolet light. And it tells us quite a lot. What you see here, this is the ground layer, which is the white priming layer, which he put on the canvas. And then all of these layers, there are nine of them, are Reinhardt layers. And we think that he probably repainted this painting a number of times. This is a lot of layers compared to some of the other paintings that we've studied. So these nine layers are Reinhardt himself. And then above there, we have all of these sprayed layers. 
Here you're seeing... <laughs> this, is, this is one of our mock-ups, which has been totally cut up, and all kinds of tests were done on it. And this is a fairly common practice in conservation, where before you actually work on a painting, you try to simulate what the artist was doing and test on something that's not the real surface. This was one of our original mock-ups and some of the, the testing we did. In, it's cut up because we sent samples to, to various places to be analyzed and to, to do some laser tests before we started working with the laser. We didn't know much about lasers, although lasers have been in conservation since probably the early 70s, but they've been primarily used for stone monuments, and I think there's there have been some successful treatments with ivory, and there's a lot of research going on now with paintings and paper, but no one has really done anything anything on a monochromatic or 20th century artwork. So we thought this is a perfect opportunity for us to, number one, learn about lasers and to see what, you know, what application they have for modern and contemporary art because we have very specific problems in, the, in this field that they don't have in the more traditional areas. This kind of thing where you have to you know, match a color or clean a painting that has no image or <laughs> is... It's probably one of the most difficult things that we do. Some of us enjoy doing it, but it's very thankless because you can you can make something look much, much better, but it's almost impossible to make it disappear completely. We tested primarily infrared lasers, but they were different wavelengths. One visible light laser. So it, it was a 1064 nanometer laser was the first infrared laser that we tested. So an infrared laser would be in the hot region of the electromagnetic spectrum and then you have the excimer laser which is in the ultraviolet or the blues and it's called a cold laser and cold in the sense that it doesn't generate a lot of heat it's a tremendous amount of energy but the wavelength is not in the hot region of the spectrum so those were the two major choices that we had was to go with the infrared and or an excimer laser and we needed something with very high energy that could have a good resolution in the sense that you can direct the beam and control the beam so that you you're not taking off a whole lot of material around it and we've we found that the infrared lasers just generated too much heat for what we were trying to do plus we had an primarily black surface underneath which which will absorb the heat so it, the hot laser was really not an option for us based on that we ended up moving on to a laser facility in Crete where there's a group of scientists there who have been working on lasers they work on all types of applications for lasers so there's hundreds of scientists there working on you know eye surgery industrial applications all kinds of things but there is a small group there that have worked on art applications and they've come up with a laser that they've they've used to clean areas of the acropolis and they're one of the most important laser facilities for research in the arts and we told them about our problem, and they invited us to come, and they, they were very generous with their time, and they quickly understood what we needed to do and were really helpful in determining the parameters of the laser. And when I say determining the parameters of the laser, that is not an easy thing to do because you might decide you can use the ultraviolet eczema laser, but there are so many different things you have to decide. For example, how, you know, how high is the energy? How many times does it strike the surface? how long is the pulse at the surface and all of those things will influence what 
you take off or what you don't take off or you know so you're fine tuning it constantly and some of the problems were getting the the beam even across the surface and how high of a beam you wanted First, we worked with a smaller beam, and then we opened up the beam, and then we tried a diffuse beam, and we tried a more focused beam. There's a technique called laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy, which is actually using the laser, and what it does is it ablates the material, and then you have a sensor that is essentially attached to this spectroscopy equipment, and you get a fingerprint of what you're removing. It's taking the gas that comes off and analyzing it for what elements you have. By comparing it with our cross-sections, we knew then exactly where we were. Related to what we're doing here, laser ablation is when you expose this material to this laser beam, which in this case is an ultraviolet excimer laser, and it the energy basically takes the solid material and converts it immediately into a gas so you don't have a liquid phase so it's solid to gas because the energy is so high that it, it doesn't have this melting point and it's so it's just volatilized those laser scientists plus this company art innovation in the netherlands were funded to do a joint project this facility art innovation they do robotics and mechanical engineering they became a consortium of, of scientists and engineers who created this laser cleaning station, which is it's pretty impressive. It's the, the optical arm that can move across the painting. So it can move across the entire painting. Everything is computerized, so you can set the X and the Y axis of how you're, how you're scanning. So essentially you can do one whole square because your parameters for each square are going to be different because you have different pigments. So once you determine the parameters for your one square, you can set with the computer for it to clean the entire square scanning across the surface. But, I mean, it's taking off a micron or, you know, a submicron layer, and that can also be set in terms of the, the energy and the spot size and the fluence. One of the things that we know from traditional treatments is that we don't leave straight lines in our cleaning or, you know, if you're going to leave a painting for a week and you're taking off a varnish, you make sure that you kind of feather that edge so that it doesn't leave a sharp line. Because it's interesting because even though you're not doing anything to the original, if you leave that line for a long time, for whatever reason, sometimes you'll see a ghost of it. And we don't generally tend to clean in straight lines like this. So what we did was we called in their computer programmer and we talked to them and Afterwards, it seemed like a fairly obvious thing, but it was a big effort to get them to to change it. I think, you know, they spent so much time creating this pretty amazing piece of equipment, but it, it wasn't functioning. And and I think they thought we should accept, you know, we, that's that's the best they could do. You have to accept that. And we, we kept talking to them, and we convinced them that to re- rewrite the program. And essentially, they rewrote the program. So we call this like a randomization, but it's a planned randomization that they put a number of different points, I think 500 different points, where the laser can clean sort of like a brush. So it goes up and down as it scans across the surface. You get to the end, and when it comes back like a typewriter, it hooks up exactly where where it was. So basically you're getting this feathered effect, which you would get with a brush. We've taken off 10 layers of the restoration in those bottom 
areas, and we're right above that sealant layer that you see. So just because of time and financial constraints, we didn't continue on the painting, but we felt that it was a really good time to to create an exhibition like this because, first of all, we've taken the, the laser technology that's available as far as it can go, and I think we've created an interest in this laser technology and that we can we can refine it. Thanks for listening. Love Science in the City podcast? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceandthecity.org and click Join Now. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story every week downloaded automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. Have questions or comments about our show? We'd love your feedback. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave a voicemail at 212-298-8654. Want to know more about science in New York? Visit scienceandthecity.org. See you next week. Bye.